From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. When you picture Alaska, what do you see? Do you imagine rugged mountains, waves crashing into sheer cliffs, roaring rivers, steep glaciers, deep canyons, and rolling tundra? Alaska is all of this and more, and it's a thrill to fly over this stunning scenery on a clear summer day. Take this geography, shrouded in fog, and add some wind, though, and a beautiful plane ride turns into a harrowing adventure. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Plane crashes are far too common in Alaska, and many of these accidents are due, at least in part, to poor weather conditions. If commercial pilots refused to fly in marginal weather, though, they would not make money because the weather is often bad in Alaska. For those of us who live or work in remote areas, we must fly in small planes, and we can't always pick our weather. Mysteries abound in Alaska about airplanes that took off and were never seen again. The following is a story of one of the most famous airplane disappearances in the history of the state. On October 16, 1972, a Cessna 310 with the tail number N. 1812H, operated by Pan Alaska Airways, disappeared somewhere between Anchorage and Juneau, Alaska. The plane was piloted by Don Jones, 38, the chief pilot for Pan Alaska. Jones was a military veteran with more than 17,000 hours of flight time. The passengers on the plane were Alaska Congressman Nick Begich, 40, his aide, Russell Brown, 37, and Louisiana Congressman Hale Boggs, 58, the U.S. House of Representatives Majority Leader. The three men were planning to attend an election rally for Begich and Juno. The plane left Anchorage at 9 a.m., and Jones filed a VFR flight plan stating he planned to fly southeast over the Turnigan Arm of Cook Inlet, through Portage Pass, over Prince William Sound to Johnstone Point, and then on to Yakutat. From Yakutat, he would fly directly to Juneau. The flight should take approximately three and one-half hours, and the airplane carried six hours of fuel. The weather was marginal throughout the entire area on October 16th. Yakutat had a 700-foot ceiling and one and one-half miles visibility with fog. Juneau also had fog. In addition to the poor visibility, icy rain and turbulent headwinds were forecasted en route. When the plane did not arrive in Juneau and was declared missing, the U.S. launched the largest search and rescue effort on record up until that time. 
The search lasted 39 days and included 40 military aircraft and 50 civilian planes, covering over 325,000 square miles. Pilots flew 1,000 sorties, totaling 3,600 flight hours. The search encompassed huge glaciers and the jagged Wrangell-St. Elias mountain range, as well as large portions of the coastlines of Prince William Sound and the Gulf of Alaska. In addition to the air operation, ground patrols searched Portage Pass twice. No piece of the aircraft was ever located during the initial search or since and officials at the time decided the plane likely crashed and either sank into Prince William Sound or was buried in ice and snow. Did the plane hit a mountain obscured by fog, or did turbulence play a role in the disaster? Icing on the wings could have affected lift and maneuverability, or any combination of these factors might have caused the plane to crash. A recent Alaska law passed just months before the plane disappeared required all small commercial aircraft be equipped with an emergency locator transmitter. Such a device would have sent out a signal if the plane crashed on land. If it crashed in the water, though, it is less certain a signal would have been relayed. Officials claimed no signal was ever received, and they determined there was no locator device on the downed aircraft. Officials terminated the search for the airplane on November 24th, and the four men were declared dead on December 29th. Even though Boggs and Baggage were presumed dead, both men were re-elected to the House of Representatives. Boggs' widow, Lindy, went on to replace her husband in Congress and served eight more terms. In Alaska, a special election was held, and Republican Don Young, who had originally lost to Begich, was elected. Young is still Alaska's congressman. Once the search for the plane was terminated and the men were declared dead, most people assumed the obvious. The pilot had simply pushed the boundaries too far. Under pressure, perhaps, from the congressman to get them to the political rally in Juneau on time, Jones chose to fly in marginal weather conditions. Pilots are often asked by demanding passengers to fly in poor weather. When those passengers are high-ranking politicians, a pilot might find it difficult to refuse them. Nick Begich was only a freshman congressman from a sparsely populated state, but Hale Boggs was a colorful, outspoken representative from Louisiana who likely would have been chosen as the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. Many people refused to believe he disappeared by accident, and conspiracy theories swirled around his untimely death. To this day, many think he was the victim of foul play instead of a hapless passenger on an ill-fated flight. Hale Boggs, a Democrat, was first elected as a U.S. representative from Louisiana in 1946, and he was re-elected 13 times. Boggs was the youngest member of the Warren Commission, which investigated the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In a 1966 interview on Face the Nation, 
Boggs defended the findings of the Warren Commission and said he believed Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone when he killed Kennedy. Despite this assertion, though, a rumor persisted that Boggs was not happy with the Warren Commission's findings and was seeking to reopen the Kennedy investigation. Around 11.30 p.m. on July 23, 1970, two years before he disappeared, a Lincoln Continental ran Boggs's car off the road in Washington, D.C. Boggs chased the car, wrote down the license plate number, and called the police. But there is no record the incident was investigated. The Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police would have been the agency in charge of the investigation. But they now say they can find no relevant records relating to the case. In April 1971, Boggs claimed the FBI tapped his telephone. Furthermore, he said, several other representatives also believed their phones had been tapped. Boggs said he knew why the FBI tapped his phone and how they intended to use the information they heard. He refused to say what that information was, but said once his lawyers finished their investigation, he would release the details to the public. Boggs then called for the immediate resignation of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Attorney General John Mitchell denied Boggs's allegations about the FBI, but Boggs said he was absolutely certain the FBI had placed a tap on his phone. Immediately after the Cessna 310 carrying Boggs, Begich, Brown, and Jones disappeared, the U.S. Coast Guard Station in Long Beach, California, received a call from an anonymous tipster claiming he knew where the plane had crashed. The man said he had access to experimental electronic equipment, and he provided detailed directions to the coordinates of the downed airplane. According to recently released documents, the FBI apparently found the source believable, and one agent wrote, The source of the aforementioned information is reliable. Agents who interviewed the man reported he appeared rational, extremely intelligent, but somewhat strange. It is not clear whether searchers checked the coordinates the tipster provided. In the hours and days following the disappearance of the plane, several independent ham radio operators in Northern California reported hearing a transmission from someone on the down plane, broadcasting there were survivors on the plane. Searchers were never able to pinpoint the location or the origin of these transmissions. According to the FBI file, the day after the plane disappeared, a search plane picked up a signal for 40 minutes, some distance from Juneau, from what was believed to be a crash locator beacon. Another weaker signal was heard 150 miles northeast of Anchorage, but search planes were unable to pinpoint the source of either signal. Freelance writer Jonathan Walsack has spent a great deal of time and money investigating the disappearance of Pan-Alaska Airways N1812H, and he believes if the plane was sabotaged, the likely target was Nick Baggage, not Hale Boggs.
Walzak writes that the consensus is the plane crashed somewhere between Portage Pass and Johnstone Point, about an hour into the flight. If the plane was covered with ice, as weather conditions that day suggest, and it crashed into Prince William Sound, it likely would have sunk to the bottom. One question remains, though. What caused the plane to crash? Walzak learned that on March 4, 1974, less than 17 months after the disappearance of her husband, Peggy Begich, the widow of Congressman Nick Begich, married Jerry Max Paisley, a mafia-connected killer and bomber. The marriage lasted only two years. In 1994, when Paisley was in prison in Arizona for murder, he spoke with investigators from the Anchorage Police Department, the Alaska State Troopers, and the Arizona Department of Public Safety. Paisley provided details to several unsolved murders and made shocking claims. But the most surprising thing he said was he transported a bomb to Alaska in 1972. Paisley worked for mobsters, including Joe Bonanno Sr., and he admitted to several bombings and murders. He was in prison in 1994 for gunning down a man in a Tucson hotel. At his trial, he told the jury he was ashamed he had killed people. Paisley knew he would spend the rest of his life in prison and said he wanted to come clean about several other killings, including the murder of his ex-wife's first husband, Nick Baggage. Paisley told investigators that in 1972, he was handed a locked briefcase by a banana lieutenant in Arizona. He was instructed to take the briefcase to Anchorage, where he handed it to two men. He flew back to Arizona the following day. He said he was told something big was about to happen, and soon afterward, the plane-carrying baggage and bogs disappeared. Paisley said he then moved to Anchorage and began dating Peggy Baggage, a woman he had met through mutual friends in Arizona and had dated before the plane went missing. Paisley claimed Peggy gave him lavish gifts, including co-ownership in a bar. His partners in the bar were Peggy and one of the men to whom he had handed the briefcase in 1972. He said he and this man were fishing one day, when the man got drunk and told Paisley the briefcase contained a high-tech bomb. According to Paisley, the man said he placed the bomb on Pan Alaska in 1812H before it left on its final flight with Baggage, Boggs, Brown, and Jones on board. The investigators were shocked by Paisley's claims and immediately notified the FBI, who sent agents to interview Paisley in 1995. Retired Anchorage Police Sergeant Mike Grimes told Walsack he was stunned by Paisley's claims, and when he returned to Anchorage from his interview with Paisley in the Arizona prison, he immediately contacted an FBI agent he knew in Anchorage. When Grimes didn't hear back from the agent for several weeks, he again contacted her, and she insisted they meet somewhere other than her office. The agent told Grimes that when her boss called FBI headquarters in Washington with the information, he was told, 
You will do nothing there. You will send everything you have to us. Other investigators also told Walzak they were surprised the FBI did not vigorously investigate Paisley's claims of a bomb. Paisley agreed to take a polygraph, but it is not clear whether the FBI ever administered one to him. The FBI shut down the investigation immediately. Max Paisley died in prison in 2010 at the age of 69. Was he telling the truth about the bomb? It is a fact Paisley married Peggy Baggage less than 17 months after her husband disappeared, and there was no upside for Paisley to claim he was responsible for carrying the bomb to Alaska. Confessing that someone in the Bonanno crime family sent him to Alaska with a bomb could have put his life in jeopardy in prison. So what reason did he have for lying about the matter? But if he was telling the truth, why did someone put a bomb on the plane, and who would want to murder Nick Baggage? If Paisley knew the answers to these questions, he apparently never told anyone. I admit Walzak's research is interesting, but we have no way of knowing whether Paisley was telling the truth during his jailhouse confession. Also, what are we to make of the broadcast heard by ham radio operators in California? And what about the mysterious stranger who claimed to know where the plane had crashed? In my opinion, the most likely scenario for the disappearance of Pan-Alaska N1812H was bad weather, including fog, turbulence, and icing. The plane probably crashed and sank to the bottom of Prince William Sound, but we will never know the truth unless the wreckage is found. Baggage and Boggs both had very successful children. Nick Baggage's son, Mark, became the mayor of Anchorage from 2003 to 2009 and was a U.S. Senator for Alaska from 2009 to 2015. Hale Boggs's daughter, Cokie Roberts, is a national news correspondent. Since 1962, more than 40 cases of missing aircraft remain open in Alaska. No missing aircraft case is closed until substantial evidence provides information to the location of the aircraft. Maybe one day we will know what happened to Pan-Alaska N1812H. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find me. I've listed the sources and suggested reading for this episode in the show notes. I've written four Alaska wilderness mystery novels. Check the show notes to learn more about my novels. I also write a newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. If you would like to receive my newsletter, check the link in the show notes to sign up for it. I write one newsletter a month, and it will include the links to my podcast episodes for the month. Also, please check the show notes for my social media links, and I invite you to connect with me. Thank you again, and I will see you next time with murder and mystery from the last frontier.